Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm joined today by my friend Eddie Acevedo, who's Chief of Staff and Senior Advisor to the Wilson Center's President and CEO. Eddie Acevedo is an expert on national security, democracy, and governance and international cooperation. He worked at the McCain Institute. He was the National Security Advisor, the aid administrator at USAID. He had a great career on Capitol Hill. In his career, Eddie has managed immense communication portfolios and served in senior positions at aid and was involved with managing 13,000 people and a $24 billion budget and enacted several bills into law as a senior staffer on the Hill, as well as in his other roles. He is here today to talk about his experiences, but also answer our big questions on trade. Eddie, I'm so happy to have you on my podcast, Building the Future with Dan Runny. Thanks for doing it. Thank you, Dan. Always a pleasure. So, Eddie, first, there was a reason I wanted you to come on, which is I want to talk about trade as kind of a part of our national security toolkit. And you have an op-ed piece. I want to talk about that. But before we get into that, I want you to tell the audience a little about who are you and a little bit about your career. So how did you get to where you are at the Wilson Center? So I've been very lucky in my career. I started in Congress working for Ileana Ross-Leitonen. Being born and raised in Miami, Florida, was really a privilege and an honor to work for her to begin my career. Did that for a few years, covered a lot of her domestic issues at the time in the beginning. Then I went to Miami-Dade County, which major of the local municipalities have a D.C. federal liaison position. So I ran that office for a few years. And then Ileana became chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee, and she asked me to come back to Congress. So I did work on the committee there. My sole responsibility was more Latin America focused. After her chairmanship at the full committee was over, she became subcommittee chair of Middle East and North Africa. So I was her staff director for another six years there, learning a whole new region, which I really loved because it helped me kind of compare regions and it broadened my scope a little bit on how everything is connected. And then in 2017, 2018, she announced her retirement. And at that time, as you know, a mutual good friend of both you and I, Ambassador Mark Green, was being nominated at the time to be administrator for USID. And uh, he called me up and said, hey, why don't you come to USID? And I'll be honest, when I first thought about it, the first few months were very awkward, right? Imagine having the responsibility in Congress to oversee an agency and then going to work for that agency. Even in the first few months, I remember there were many kind of investigations that I had started into USID that now I'm on the other end of that investigation, so to speak. That was fun. Was there for three years. Very honored to serve in both in the Bureau of Legislative and Public Affairs and also as the agency's national security advisor. Then I went to the McCain Institute with Ambassador Green, was there for a little bit. And then now I'm here at the Wilson Center again with Ambassador Green. And it's a great opportunity to continue the drumbeat on the importance of foreign policy in our nation. I love your former boss, Ileana Ross Light. She's a wonderful person. And she's a hero for a time. She's strategic. 
She's taken some principled stands. She's supported some really talented people like you in their careers. And then you've had a great other partnership with Ambassador Mark Green. So you've had two really great professional partners that you've worked with over the last 10 plus years. You're very fortunate to have such great folks to work with. It's phenomenal. Yeah, very much so. I mean, you know, with Ileana, we traveled the world together. I learned so much from her in how to do diplomacy from a congressional standpoint. And then, you know, with Ambassador Green, he's so much well-respected on both sides of the aisle. And I think, you know, for me, that's one of the things that I learned very early in my career with my current and my previous boss is that importance of bipartisanship in foreign policy. I think sometimes I get lost today, but if you really look back on the major accomplishments from the executive and or congressional standpoint on foreign policy, it's always been done in a bipartisan manner. I 100% agree with that. The other thing, when I think about Ileana Russell, she's a person with a sense of fun. Yeah. She's a joyful person. She's smart, strategic, effective, bipartisan, and she also is a positive, joyful person. I like being around her all the time. She's a great human being and a great stateswoman and really a hero for our time, a really great leader. Yeah, and we miss Illy tremendously in Congress right now. Totally. I think that kind of leadership and respect in many capitals around the world is something that is missed. And that ability to negotiate One of the things that we saw recently is obviously the Russia sanctions package that, you know, they couldn't get it across the finish line. That would have never have happened 10, 15 years ago, right? We would have been able to come to some kind of an agreement to kind of get it through. Because at the end of the day, getting something through in a bipartisan manner is so much more important than just doing nothing. And, you know, Illy taught me a lot about that. Really, the impact that our policies make on the ground. She was adamant in terms of her fight for freedom for Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua. And that's obviously a passion that I share with her. And, you know, being able to talk to these civil society leaders, these human rights activists, and really getting a taste of what they're facing on the ground and how we can be their voice here in the halls of Congress and the White House was just such a great experience. Yeah, she has a lot of moral authority. She's someone who had a lot, has a lot of moral authority. I miss her, too. You had a very senior role at USAID where you were the National Security Advisor to the Aid Administrator. You were also the Principal Liaison for the National Security Council for AID. You saw a lot of interesting issues come across your desk. Can you talk about some of the issues and how should we think about soft power in the context of national security? You know, ultimately, one of the things that we did when I got the position of the National Security Advisor was I wanted to bring some kind of structure and coordination regarding USAID's interactions with the National Security Council. What I mean by that is there's so many meetings, as you know, Dan, that don't reach that principles level, that are in other smaller levels. And one of the things that Ambassador Green was noticing was that a lot of decisions were being made in those meetings and the folks we were sending from USID really did not have a direction from the front office on what our equities were. Part of my kind of task was to structure and coordinate a process in which decisions were being put at the sub PCC and the PCC levels. And we had some direction on exactly what we wanted to accomplish in terms of USID equities. In terms of, you know, the issues coming across the desk, to me, that was one of the blessings I had at USID serving in legislative and public affairs and the national security advisor. I was able to see the whole chessboard right? I wasn't stuck in just one region or one issue. I was able to be kind of cross-regional and and cross-functional. 
And I was able to kind of take a lot of those lessons learned. So, you know, a lot of from the operational side, as you know, Dan, we done a lot on the reorganization of USID, which I think still is a story that has not been told in terms of what we actually did, the largest reorg of any U.S. federal entity at that time, maybe in its history. We did a couple other things. As you know, Ambassador Green is very much a democracy warrior. I shared that passion with him as well. We wanted to change what was called the closed spaces policy, and we wanted to put USID back in the democracy game. So that was a big priority for us trying to bring accountability to a lot of U.S. taxpayer funds that go to the U.N. families, making sure that we have eyes and ears on where that money is going, and also trying to increase the partners that we have at USID. Now being outside of USID, a lot of the questions I get from folks is, hey, we want to work with them. How do we do it? And breaking down some of those bureaucratic barriers to invite new ideas and innovation to help in the development space, I think was crucial. On the programmatic side, we're very proud of a lot of our successes, as you can imagine. I mean, in Latin America, we increased the bilateral account for Colombia by 20 million. We also invested an extra 75 million into Colombia on the bilateral side. In Venezuela, you know, a lot of people don't remember, Dan, when we stepped foot at USID, not one dollar had been spent on humanitarian assistance on the Venezuela issue. Not one dollar. And that was one of the things Ambassador Green was adamant about that, you know, we had to fix this. We had to get it right. And by the time we left, we were at $1.2 billion of humanitarian assistance on the Venezuela issue, both inside of Venezuela and to the partnering countries. We did a lot of work on religious and ethnic minorities. The REM work was crucial to what we were trying to accomplish both in the Middle East, in Asia, and also in Africa. And, you know, something else, Dan, that we did was we really, in the development space, we really have to expand our partners. A lot of the development money out there is from the traditional partners that you and I both know, right? You got DFID, you got Germany, South Korea, Japan, right? These partners have always been there and will always be there. But from the development space, we really need to broaden that. Coalition building on development is something that really hasn't been done. The State Department and DOD do this all the time. It's very much part of the course for them. In the USID space, it really is not something that's done very well. So we took this on. We formed new global MOUs, both with Israel and the UAE, because they were new players in the development space, and they wanted to work with us, both in Africa and across Latin America. So we were able to get some of that done. And that actually helped us later on when the Abraham Accords negotiations were on the final stations on Sudan. There was a large food security component to that deal on Sudan. And these kind of trilateral conversations really were very fruitful. So, you know, there was a lot that was kind of happening during our tenure. And, you know, we felt that we were able to make some progress in the development space. Great. So you just published an article in National Review, America must prioritize trade policy in its global competition with China. Tell me about why did you write this article and what are the messages you wanted the readers to take away from this article? Sure. So honestly, Dan, I wrote the piece out of frustration. I look at trade as very much an important component to our national security. And it's a tool that we haven't really used very well. I think trade has been used and cited and either supported or criticized solely based on economics and the numbers. But we don't really transcend that into what it means in our national security and how we could use it both as a stick, but also as a carrot. So, you know, a few examples that I've talked about in the past is like on CAFTA, 
Right now on CAFTA, the U.S. has one trade deficit on CAFTA, and that is in Nicaragua. So if you're thinking about CAFTA, if you're thinking about succeeding in the Northern Triangle, what do you think these countries want more, aid or do they want trade? I will say they want trade. And right now, as we look at CAFTA, the one who's winning the trade bout is a murderous dictatorship in Managua. This is something that needs to be fixed. And the U.S. has to stand up and make sure that we're not propping up this regime. You know, some of the other ideas I'll put in the piece is creating a Abraham Accords free trade agreement. Right now, if you look at the signatories to Abraham Accords, you have Bahrain, which the U.S. already has a free trade agreement with Bahrain. You have Morocco, which the U.S. already has a free trade agreement with Morocco. Obviously, Jordan has a peace treaty with Israel. We already have a free trade agreement with them. And obviously, the Israelis themselves, we have a free trade agreement with them. Bringing this together and making them trade amongst themselves and us being the interlocutor, I think it's an important piece. And also, we see that whether we like it or not, Dan, this train has left the station. You already see the UAE and Israel who believe that they're going to hit a trillion dollars in trade over the next decade. All right. They are negotiating a free trade agreement right now, which, according to them, they usually take about three years. They're going to fast track it and they're hoping to get it done by the end of the year. The U.S. needs to get involved. The U.S. needs to get in the game because at the end of the day, China is doing this, right? China is leveraging, whether you want to call it Belt and Road, whether it's trade, whether it's undue influence and debt. The Chinese are out there and they are negotiating deals left and right. And the U.S. is just too slow to respond. For me, an easy fix, even going back to the Latin America standpoint, is USMCA. So USMCA, think about this, Dan. It is the most bipartisan free trade agreement in America's history. And instead of us saying, man, how can we replicate this? This was such an achievement. We got business. We got labor, right? Let's replicate. Instead, we said, you know what? Let's never do this again. That to me is just purely asinine. And I think there's a way that we can incentivize it. I think if we add the clause to let other countries join, the UK has said that they're willing to join. I think this is a way that we can do this so that we don't have to recreate the wheel. So if you go to like, let's say a Colombia that we're celebrating our 200th year anniversary this year, we can tell the Colombians, hey, how would you like to upgrade our FTA, right? Instead of having access to the US market, we will give you access access to North America market. And in return, now you have new standards on intellectual property, on labor, on climate, all the things that you know we all think are good things. And I think this could also be an incentive to the countries in Central America. If they want to play with the big boys and be able to have access, then we got to have some things in return, which, oh, by the way, Dan, in Central America, corruption is a big issue, as you know, and USMCA has corruption standards, right? So I think this is a way to incentivize with some carrots while at the same time bring a lot of these countries into the fold. A country that I know you care about a lot is Ecuador. And, you know, we've seen the Ecuadorians pretty much begging for a free trade agreement. And where are we? Right. And instead, Ecuador said, all right, we're just going to go to China. And there goes President Lasso off to Beijing. So I think for us, we have to take care of our home field. The Latin America market is obviously something that impacts U.S. national security. And, you know, there was once a vision, right, to get a region wide free trade agreement. That might be a little bit too ambitious, but I think the Biden administration has a great opportunity with the Summit of the Americas. Put 
trade on the agenda front and center put trade on the agenda let's get this moving again and being able to have countries opt into usmca we don't have to negotiate a new deal those standards are already set they're bipartisan and either folks want to get in on it or they don't amen 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 i love this that's why i wanted you on Ecuador wants a free trade agreement. Brazil wants a free trade agreement. For all the complaints about the Bolsonaro government that people have in Washington, this is the most pro-American government we've ever had in Brazil probably in the 100 years. I think that's the truth. And they want a trade agreement with us. Now, I also think Uruguay wants a free trade agreement with us. These are just three countries in the hemisphere. You know, I think the members of CAFTA-DR would like to see the fulfillment of the promise of CAFTA-DR. Perhaps joining USMCA would be a part of that. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think this is very exciting. I 100% agree with you. I believe all of our trade agreements have been done, not just for commercial reasons, but for some geopolitical, geoeconomic, national security, or diplomatic reasons. And you're tapping into that. I 100% agree with you. Either we're going to do this or we're going to cede the space to China. You're seeing this now. 20 years ago, of the 200 or so countries, the United States was the number one trading partner for about 120 countries. Today, China's the number one trading partner for about 120 countries. It's been totally flipped on its head. We have got to wake up and smell the coffee. This is a very serious situation. Trade has got to be one of the tools in our toolkit. We've, in essence, kind of stopped talking about it because it's kind of taboo for the last five or six years. And I think it's a mistake. We're going to have to come back to trade from a diplomatic, geoeconomic, and national security perspective. Okay, given all that, Eddie, what do you say to people who are trade skeptics who say, I hate trade, I don't like these trade agreements? What's your answer to those folks that are critics? I understand that trade sometimes to some sectors, it's a big benefit to other sectors, not so much. And some folks get hurt by it. I'm totally sympathetic to this argument, but I think as we look at it from a more general perspective, trade has been very good to us. If you look at a lot of the free trade agreements, at least in Latin America, a lot of them, the U.S. has a trade surplus with these countries, right? So we're actually winning most of these competitive markets. And in the meantime, China, they've joined the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership you know, with the Asian countries. They're looking at doing something in the Trans-Pacific Partnership. They're looking at doing an investment deal with the EU. And just a few months ago, they hosted the Gulf Cooperation Council, the GCC, and they're looking at a possible free trade agreement with the Gulf. So again, this is happening with or without us, and we need to get in the game a lot sooner. The fact that the Trade Promotion Act expired last year, to me, that is just another failure of members of Congress to let that expire. I think that is the first thing we need to do is get the TPA up and running again, because ultimately we're not gonna spend our way out of this, right? A lot of people think, well, China's Belt and Road, you know, we need to match them. We're not gonna match them one by one. Another issue that I raised in the piece, Dan, is the DFC. I think there's a lot of people who believe that the DFC is the answer. I think the DFC does play a role in this, but it's going to be difficult for them to compete. The DFC investment cap is only $60 billion. That's the credit card limit. It's not what they spend every year. They spend about 5 to $7 billion a year, right, Eddie? That's right. And if you look at Belt and Road, you know, Belt and Road, depending upon some of these public estimates, it's anywhere between $500 billion to into the trillions. So if we're going to say our national security strategy, our national economic strategy is the DFC, and it's one one hundredth or one tenth of what these guys are doing, 
and it ain't ever going to be that, then we're out of our minds. It, it actually gets worse, Dan, because people have this vision that the DFC is some kind of forward operating deployment unit, right? That we send these people off into X countries and sign the checks. And that's not how it is, right? That's not how it works. As you and I both know, it's very contingent upon whatever deals may or may not be on the ground. So if Dan and Eddie open a Chevy dealership in Malawi, Dan and Eddie have to send a letter in the mail or an email to an investment officer or some email box at Pennsylvania Avenue where the DFC headquarters is. Someone has to open that email and say, oh, let's put it into the process. So there's some Washington investment officer who looks at this and says, are we going to provide a loan to Dan and Eddie's Chevy dealership? In Malawi, it's very reactive to what comes in the door, as you're saying, right? It's Correct. basically, it's not, Correct. I don't know how many people they have as of now who are circuit riders overseas. They're basically contractors that they've hired from, you know, small consulting firms. But remember, Dan, the way this was created, hold on a second, is that they're not supposed to have staff overseas because that's USAID's role by having the missions on the ground and them taking what used to be DCA into the DFC. But at the end of the day, we also have to remember that at USAID, when we would deliver aid or something, it was tangible, it was real, it was coming, you knew it was coming, right? Because the DFC is based on deals, and we learned this lesson very harshly in the Columbia example, where DFC promised Columbia a billion dollars, a billion dollars, right? In the toughest places. Yeah. And Columbia said, great. When is the money coming? And then we said, oh, no, no, but it's going to come within eight to 10 years. So imagine the U.S. talking point on China overseas is that they overpromise and underdeliver. And we had DFC saying a billion here, a billion there. And then the devil's in the details. A lot of frustration came in. Same thing happened in Ecuador, where our plan for Ecuador was we're going to pay off their Chinese debt. So we're going to use U.S. taxpayer dollar to pay Chinese debt for the Ecuadorians. Again, I think DFC plays an important role here, but they're not going to be the answer to this. Eddie, I was one of the architects of the DFC. You know, if you have trouble sleeping at night, I've written a lot of papers on development finance, like eye glazing stuff. You want to learn about OOF versus ODA? <laughs> I, I got a paper on that. The finer points of equity scoring and the OMB. I mean, just root canal stuff. We've done a lot of deep think on this. I 100% agree. With you. I get into a panic and start sweating when I hear admirals and generals saying that our Indo-Pacific strategy is the DFC. It's, it's insane. <laughs> it's nuts. We have to have a series of tools in the toolkit. The DFC is a refined tool. It's one tool. We had to have a functioning Exim Bank. I spent a lot of time getting Exim Bank out of its Rip Van Winkle slumber. And then I chaired the Sub-Saharan Africa Advisory Committee. We had to have an economic strategy on Prosper Africa. I think the Trump administration did the right thing on that. I had something to do with it. I'd convened a bunch of meetings and did some papers to kind of help. If you draw a line from those papers to what the policy was, there's a link. And I was involved with the DFC because I was working on that for 10 years. But oh my word, it ain't enough. It ain't enough. That's why I wanted you on because Eddie, we've got to have a much more strategic vision. We've got to revamp our trade engagement because it's another tool in the toolkit. And again, like the DFC, like the Exim Bank, like foreign aid, trade isn't the only answer, but it's really damn important. And it's actually even more important oftentimes than the DFC or Exim Bank or foreign aid. They 100%, like you said, what do they want? They want more trade with us. That's what they want. 
And again, you know, I want to be on the record here. I do believe DFC has an important role. Of course. But DFC is not a strategy. It's a specific tool. But as a comparison, you know, let's go to Prosper because I did mention Prosper in the op-ed. Prosper has done, according to their statistics, 800 deals in 45 African countries worth 50 billion. So again, let me restate this. The DFC cap is 60 billion and Prosper Africa has already done enough deals worth 50 billion. The cap is the credit card limit. That's the amount they can lend out or invest in. Right. Now, what's important about Prosper, which is where all this comes together, Dan Rundy, is Prosper does two things. Number one, it helps the private sector by trying to get the bureaucrats in government out of the way. And number two, it does what we needed to do, which was help the surrounding environment to help foster trade. So what does that mean? That means better anti-corruption measures. That means better transparency measures. That's where, you know, MCC, that's where USID, that's where DFC can come in and play an important role. But I think really using the lessons from Prosper is another tool that we can use in other regions as a way to bolster two-way trade. Eddie, you've put your finger on, I think, some really important issues. That's why I wanted you to come on. We need foreign aid. We need the Exxon Bank. We needed a strength in DFC. We needed an economic trade commercial strategy for Africa. But we need to have a much more sophisticated and aggressive trade strategy. You've put your finger on a lot of important things. And you said a lot of important things in this piece in National Review. You know, I've been reading National Review since I was 20, loyally. And so you didn't send it to me. I saw it online and I was like, I got to talk to Eddie. This is great. Thanks for what you're doing over at the Wilson Center. You're fighting the good fight. I wanted to have you on. It's great to have you on. This is the exact kind of strategic thinking that we need. Thank you for putting that out there. No problem, Dan. Gracias, amigo. Gracias, amigo. Un abrazo. It's my two cents in in helping you in your endeavor, brother. Me encantó. Me encantó. (laughs) Tu granito de arena. I love it. Exactly. Eddie, thanks, buddy. Let's get together soon. Thanks, pal. Would do. Have a good one. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 